0: Good. Hey, let's pray. Father, we have come together today to gather on your word, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see uh, your truth. Lord Jesus, could I ask you specifically in this time now, that the thing we've come to talk about is a thing that uh, is hard for us. And so we pray that you would cause us not to shut down, but to receive what you have for us. And then to just really examine, or to, actually more importantly, to let you examine us. Uh, to teach us and instruct us. Every week we come and we want to sit underneath the authority of your word. And, uh, and so we pray, Lord, that when we engage in subjects where um, they're difficult for us, we pray that you would come, meet us in this place um, to encourage and to equip us and to remind us that you love us and to repel us into deeper righteousness. Lord, we pray it in your name for your sake. Amen. Well, as Dan said, we're kicking off a series on belonging. And at West Shore, we do believe that there are four really key activities of a disciple. Worship, belong, train, multiply. So we talk about it. Now, the reason we've chosen that word belong is because we think it's different than just um, the idea of connecting. Now, you'll hear a lot of times in churches, people say, hey, we want you to be connected, right? We want you to have a sense of community. Well, we, the reason we chose the word belonging is we want more than just a sort of a, a base. Level of connecting for you as a disciple of Jesus. What we really believe and are convicted of is that followers of Jesus need a deep level of sense, a deep sense of belonging in the community of faith. That there needs to be a way in which you, as a follower of Jesus, feel uh, deeply, intimately, closely connected to God's people. That you walk alongside them and live your life among them in such a way that you would say that this is. Uh, crucial to my life, that this exists in my life. And so that's why we talk in terms of belonging. Now, Dan said so we're going to talk about three aspects of that, because like anything, when we say worship and belong and train and multiply, you probably, if, you know, ask the question, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, what, do, what does that mean? So from time to time, we like to sort of step back and ask ourselves, okay, let, let's Let's frame what it is that we're talking about when we say that we want to be a church where people belong. Because you might have different ideas about that than I do. uh, And, you know, another person sitting next to you probably has a different idea than you do. And so we want to just clarify what some of those things are. As Dan said, we're not going to be able to cover everything, but we're going to talk about three specific aspects of belonging and what we think it really looks like in a biblical sense. So that said, now let me tell you why I hate the title of this sermon Uh, I wrote the title of this sermon, and I couldn't get around it, and I don't like it. The title of the sermon is Transformative Vulnerability. Can I tell you why I don't like it? Uh, I don't like it because it sounds to me like one of those sermons that you would hear that is really no different than a TED Talk, that is just sort of a moral therapy session, which says you need to get in a group of people and sit in a circle every week and cry together, and then all will be well with your life. Uh, and I am not wired for a once a week cry session with a bunch of dudes or ladies or whoever else. I don't want that in my life. Somebody say amen. amen. Now I'm going to tell you why you need to get in a circle with people. No, I'm, just I, I, I'm, not, I'm not wired to. And that's what, honestly, when I started getting engaged with church, when I started getting involved and people, were like, hey, be in a small group, be in a life group, being in a group, whatever they called it, right, at the time. Being one of these groups, I thought, is that where I'm supposed to sit around and talk about my feelings? And and like, I just have very little interest in that. Uh, And thankfully, over the years, guys have shaped my understanding of what it looks like to be a part of the Christian community. So let me tell you what I do know. I know I'm not wired for the sort of, I mean, I know that some of you think I need a good cry every day or I haven't had a good day. Uh, To me, that sounds like a terrible day. If I cried that day, it was a bad day. Uh, not necessarily. There, I guess there's good, there are good tears. This is not my therapy session here. Let's just, <laughs> let's just keep moving. I thought about going down some rap I don't need to go down. Let me tell you, while I'm, while I'm not wired for that, here's what I do know. I do know it seems to be an inescapable fact that I am wired for close relationships. That I am hardwired Inside my brain, inside my emotions, inside my body, I feel hardwired to be in deep, close relationships with people. And the more I live, the more I am convinced of that. Here's what I also know, okay? In order to have those deep kind of relationships, in order to be closely connected to people, I have to be willing to be vulnerable with people. It seems like it's a must. In all my experiences, I am learning that you cannot have a close relationship with someone unless you're willing to trust that person enough to be vulnerable with them. Would you all agree with that? And yet I find that incredibly hard. I have in myself a, a knowledge that I have a hard wiring for something, this thing called close relationships, and yet I also have in me things that make it really hard to have that thing like an aversion to vulnerability. And there's a thousand others as well, but that, that's the one we're talking about today. That I am, I am deeply averse to sort of wanting to be vulnerable. Now let me define that term for you. When I say the term vulnerability, here's what I mean. I mean a willingness to be honest about who I am, what I think, how I feel, and what I have done to the degree that the person with whom I share that actually has power to hurt me with that knowledge. That's what vulnerability really means, right? Being honest about who I am, what I've done, what I think, how I feel, to the degree that the person with whom I share it actually has the power to cause me harm if they were to reveal that to someone else, if they were to bring that forward to me or to throw it back in my face at a moment of weakness and to say, ha-ha, see, you did, and, and that hurts, Right? So when we talk about vulnerability, that's really what that's the the operational definition we're working with. That idea of being open to being harmed by somebody. So I'm, I'm learning that I can't have close relationships, which I'm wired for, unless I'm willing to be vulnerable, which I'm averse to. So that calls for a bit of a journey, doesn't it? It calls for me to do a bit of examination, to ask myself, Okay, if I'm wired for this, but I have all these things that stand in the way of getting to what I'm wired for, why is that? What is the reason for that? What's causing that? And how do I undo that? Like, how do I figure that out? Am I truly hardwired for it or is that, am I just mistaken? And if I am hardwired for it, then why do these things exist that prevent me from it? Now let me say, when it calls for a journey, I don't mean, I don't mean a journey of self-inspection. Now it's good to be introspective. It's good to spend some time in prayer before the Lord and say, okay, Lord, what's going on inside me? What's in my head? But here's what I know, friends. I've been inside my head for as long as I've known me. Uh, And the answers that I'm looking for are not in there. And so I need more than just a journey of self-understanding. I need what I would call a theological journey. I need to understand why it is that God has made me in such a way and why it is that theologically certain difficulties exist in sort of fulfilling and stepping into that way that I'm wired. Because here's the deal, if I just do a journey of self-understanding, here's what I'm going to uncover. I'm going to find uh, that I have a problem with vulnerability, and I'm going to, maybe, I'm going to uncover the problem behind that problem. But do you know what's behind that problem that's behind the problem? Yeah, it's another problem. And do you know what's behind that problem? It's another problem, and another problem, and Ultimately, we just work our way backwards, endlessly uncovering different aspects of ourselves that don't seem to line up with where we need to be or that prevent us from accomplishing our hard wiring. So when I say we need a theological journey, here's what I mean. I want to understand God's perspective on how I'm wired and why I have difficulty walking in that wiring because God's perspective gives me the ultimate cause of the difficulty that I have so that I don't have to keep going back one iteration after another, after another. I'm really looking for what is theologically at the root of my difficulties with vulnerability and therefore preventing my sense of belonging. You guys follow that? You with me? So that's kind of the journey I want to walk us through today. I want to, I want to try and answer three questions for us pertaining to vulnerability. This idea of being vulnerable, being willing to open ourselves up to people, uh, be honest with one another. Now let me say this because I think that there is a, uh, a, a faux form of vulnerability which actually kills real vulnerability. And I need to let you know about that because I could stand up here and identify a couple of different answers to these questions that I'm going to ask you today. And in doing that, you might think, okay, I'm going to just go and share everything with everybody all the time. Uh, and I'm going to admit my weakness and I'm going to admit my faults to folks all the time. And here's what I find that when we do that, it feels cathartic you know what I mean? Want to say cathartic, it feels like a release, but we have no intention of actually being changed by what we've admitted, right? That's a faux form of vulnerability. That's just a way of beating others to the punch and saying to them what is wrong with you before they pick up on it and identify it because it hurts less when we say it first. And what that really does is nothing for us. A real vulnerability, a true vulnerability, presses deeper than a faux vulnerability does It sees the real difficulty with the problems in us. It acknowledges them first before God. And secondly, it acknowledges them before the people that God brings into our life with whom we should share those things. Right. It would be inappropriate for me to get up here and just unveil to you all all the difficulties in my life. That probably would not be real helpful to you. And it definitely would not be helpful to me. Right. And that's a form of vulnerability that is more about me and not about really Uh, seeing God at work. And so I want to just sort of identify that. We're looking for something a little different than that faux form of vulnerability. So here's the three questions I want to see if we can't answer today. We'll spend a few minutes thinking about each of them. The first is this. Why do I need to belong to a Christian community? That's the first question. Why do I need to belong to a Christian community? The second question is, why can't belonging happen without vulnerability? We've just said that, but why? I mean, is that true? And if it is, why is that the case? And then, thirdly, we want to answer the question how can I become willing to risk being vulnerable? Like, how can I get there? Because it's one thing to say, well, here's why you have the problem. It's another thing to say, here's how you can actually move forward in being willing to be vulnerable so that you can move into a sense of belonging. Okay, so we've just said that vulnerability exists so that, or one of the reasons we need to be vulnerable, so that we can belong to a community, to a Christian community. Well, why do I need to belong to that? Now, there's a lot of answers to that question. Uh, I could give you everything ranging from, uh, well, belonging to a community keeps me on the right path, right? It keeps me from when I'm headed the wrong direction, somebody is able to correct me, say, hey, that's a landmine, don't step on that, Right. That's one reason to belong to Christian community. It ranges all the way from that to things like it keeps me from being selfish, right? This is what I call the roommate corollary or the roommate theory. Right? I was single until I was 31. I was pretty committed, uh, pretty convinced that I always needed to have a roommate. Why? Because when I lived by myself, I was just all about me all the time, right? And having a roommate meant that I was going to have fights about whose turn it was to do the dishes. But that fight, something in me said that that fight was actually beating the selfishness out of me somehow, Right, And so there's ideas of living in community in part is all about learning how to rid ourselves of selfishness. But they also, answers to this question, range to uh, I need someone to sit with me in hard times. Right, I need someone to come around me in the moments of great difficulty in life. And so you know, there's a thousand of these answers, but I want to give you two. The first one I want to give you is the reason I think that is the reason behind all the other reasons. Okay, And the second reason I want to give you is one that I think is very rarely thought of. Uh, And I didn't think of it. Uh, A man named Eugene Peterson thought of it, who's a lot smarter and sharper than I am, if you've read any of Eugene. So let me tell you the reason behind the other reasons. And if you've heard a sermon, anything on vulnerability, this has probably come up. But here's the reason behind all the other reasons is that you and I are made in the image of a triune God. You know what I mean when I say triune? A God who's three in one. That's what I mean. Right, this this mystery we call the Trinity in the Christian faith, which is that God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but one God. And because we're made in His image, there is something in us that is hardwired, as we said, for community. The reason people use that phrase, oh, we're hardwired for relationships, is this, this exact fact, this exact reason. This is what stands behind them all. Look at Genesis 1, uh, verse 26. We'll put it up on the screens for you. It says this, Uh, After creating all the world, uh, everything in it. And by the way, when you read the Genesis account of creation, one of the interesting things to do is to read it through the lens of God creating uh, the world to put human beings in it as the pinnacle of his creation. I had a seminary professor who illustrated it beautifully, I thought, when he said that when you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, about God creating the world and then creating human beings, one of the things you need to recognize is that God treasures human beings and is going to place them in the world. But before he does so, he creates a really perfect nest into which he can put them. So when he's creating the seas and the sky and the stars and the mountains, when he's creating all that he creates, he's creating it as a nest of sorts, right, into which he can place his people. After doing all of that nesting, in Genesis 1, we hear this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, there's a lot that can be unpacked from that. There's two things in particular that are really valuable for us today. Did you notice the plural in that sentence? Let us make man in our image. Okay, this is not God the Father saying, let me make man in my image. He's saying, let us do it. In other words, there's more than who there. There's more than one there. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all participating in creation. All participating in the making of human beings. Now, that's the first thing that's important. The second thing is that he says, let us make them in our image, in our likeness. Now, you know what that is? That's a mission statement of sorts for human beings because what God is essentially saying is the purpose of these beings, which we're going to create, is going to be to reflect our likeness, to look like us, to make to, to be a mirror, so to speak, for all of creation when it looks at human beings to bear our image. Above all other things, you and I as human beings bear the image of God. Now, when's the last time you were out in the mountains looking up at the stars? Anybody been there recently? When you are out there and you see the stars, and I'm not talking about in the city. I'm talking about like when you get out and it's dark, right? And the sun goes down and you see it just feels like endless, a sea of stars above you, right? Or you're you're staring at the mountain like like that experience, if you've ever been to Yosemite, right? Yosemite, one of my favorite places on earth, out in California. There's a, there's a part of the drive when you come down in Yosemite and you come down out of the high country and you're exiting the high country and coming around a bend to come into the low country, down into Muir Woods, down into the valley, right? Muir Valley. Uh, you're coming around and there is one turn that you make. You know, it's a bunch of switchbacks because you're getting from high elevation to low elevation. And there's a moment when you come around one turn where The entire valley opens up in front of you. And you see El Capitan in front of you and Half Dome. These granite monoliths that are thousands of feet high. And and just, I'm talking about redwoods that that are hundreds of feet high. And you come, when you come around that bend, it is hard to keep the car on the road. It's so astounding. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19 says. And they do, they shout the fact that there is a creator, a maker with purpose and intention and design. And yet above all of those things that you and I marvel at because they're astounding, you are the most marvelous because you bear the image of God in a way that no other thing in all creation does. Just, just think on that for, for a moment. That you, I mean honestly, piddly little you, right? You bear the image of the divine in a way that no other thing does. So when God says in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, what he's saying is they are going to reflect what we are like in a way that nothing else will. That's our job, so to speak, to do that. And if God exists as three in one, then you and I exist to reflect that among other things, right? We exist to reflect the three in oneness of God. Well, I can't do that alone. So who do I need to be able to do that? I need you and you need me. There needs to be a sense of belonging in us because because the reason we step into belonging within a Christian community is because we have a job of reflecting God's likeness. And the only way to do that when God is three in one is to live in community, in belonging with other people, in deep and close connectedness. You guys follow me? So that's the the ultimate theological reason why you are hardwired, why you feel desire to be connected to other people. That's the reason right there. Because God made you and said, I'm three in one, and I want you to look like me. Okay, now let's talk about the reason that is rarely thought of. Uh, In his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, uh, Eugene Peterson, that's a great title, by the way, isn't it? He's talking about what it looks like to follow Jesus. The whole book, is, it's a short one, but it's a great read. It's a commentary on the songs of ascent, uh, which were the songs that the Jewish people would sing. It's, it's in the middle hundreds of the psalms when you read them. These are songs that the Jewish people would sing when they would make their way from wherever they lived into Jerusalem, uh, which was higher in elevation, so they were ascending, the psalms of ascent. They would sing these on their way to worship God with God's people. So they're... they're moving towards the chief communal act of their entire year, the High Holy Days, the Day of Atonement, where they're going to come together and offer sacrifices and praise God together, where they've been living scattered all year long, and now they're coming together in community to worship God and offer sacrifices. In Psalm 133, Says this, behold how good and pleasing it is when brothers dwell in unity. He goes on to compare it to the anointing that runs down the high priest's beard, the oil on the beard of Aaron, and then he goes on to compare community belonging to uh, the dew that refreshes the mountains. He's just using poetic imagery to talk about how important the sense of belonging is. And Eugene says this, commenting on this psalm, and I thought it was brilliant. He says, We can no more be a Christian. And have nothing to do with the church than be a person and not be in a family. So the question is not, am I going to be a part of a community of faith? But how am I going to live in this community of faith? Now get that, because here's what Eugene is saying. The second reason I would say you need to be a part of a Christian community, of a deep connectedness within a church body. The reason is that you don't have a choice, really. You don't choose, when you come to Jesus, whether or not you also want to become part of his family. You just are. When you, come in, when you come to Christ, you come to Christ's people as well. There's just no way around it. You may want one and not the other, but you can't have it. And so Eugene is saying something which I think is really brilliant. He's saying, look, the question is not whether or not you're going to be a part of this thing called the body of Christ, whether you're going to be a part of the family of God. The question is just how well are you going to do it? Now, that helps me because I'm kind of a mission-driven kind of a person where I know, like, if I don't need to do something, then I'll just leave it beside and go on and do other things that I know I need to do. But the second I know that something is required of me or that's critical, mission critical, the second I know that reality, then I don't just want to do it halfway. I want to do it well. Anybody with me? Anybody like that, right? So the question is not, honestly, you don't get a choice of whether or not you belong to the people of God. You can just do a really good job or a really poor job of living that out. That's, that's the reality. That helps me because it makes me go, I want to do a great job of living out that reality. So those are two reasons why we need to belong to a Christian community. Now, like I said, there's a thousand others. Those are just the two I wanted to comment on today. But let's move to question number two, okay? If question number one is, why do I need to belong? Then question number two is, why can't belonging happen without vulnerability? If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 32. We're going to look at a story there. I'm going to give you a little background And we'll put it up on the screen too if you don't have your Bible with you today. Genesis 32 verses 22 through 32. So this is a, a sort of a pivotal moment in a guy's life, a guy named Jacob. Now, some of you may be familiar with Jacob, some of you may not be. Let me give you a little background on Jacob. Jacob is the son of Isaac, and Isaac is the son of Abraham. These are names if you've read your Bible a little bit, you may have heard before. Jacob before he was ever born, was told by God, prophesied by God, that he would have a special place in God's work in the world. So God said, I'm going to create a people. And in this chapter, you're going to read about Jacob's name being changed from Jacob to Israel. Now, you probably recognize the name Israel, right, as a nation. The nation of Israel comes from this man named Jacob, whose name gets changed from Jacob to Israel. Now, Jacob had God declare to him that there was going to be a special purpose for his life. He, was, he declared actually to to Jacob's parents, right? And I, it was handed down to him. His mom kind of doted on him. Jacob was a mama's boy. His mama loved him a lot. Uh, he, his mama, Rebecca, loved him a lot. Uh, he was not necessarily a daddy's boy because dad loved his twin brother more than he loved Jacob. And Jacob's twin brother's name was Esau. Now Esau was big and strong, kind of a strapping dude, loved to go out and hunt. Jacob was more the kind of guy that liked to sit home with a good book, all right? And so they were very different guys. And all through life, Jacob is constantly trying to figure out how to be enough. That's really the marker of Jacob's life. He spends his life deceiving, tricking, being crafty, trying to figure out how to make it through life through his own strength. There's a number of episodes. In the course of their lives, Jacob uh, steals doesn't really steal, he convinces Esau to sell him his birthright. In other words, his inheritance. Now, as the firstborn son, Esau would have gotten the majority of the inheritance as the firstborn son in Middle Eastern family. Jacob says, hey, why don't you sell that to me for a bowl of soup? I'm not sure why Esau thought that was a good deal, but he did it. Uh, So they're not on great footing already because now Esau knows he's lost his birthright. At the end of Isaac's life, when he's going to bless his sons, Jacob proceeds to deceive Isaac, who is blind at the time, and steal Esau's blessing. In other words, it's a blessing the father going to pronounce over them, uh, which they believe will ultimately come true. Right? And he says, "I bless you, my son. This is what's going to happen to you. I bless you. This is what's going to happen to you." He had a blessing for both of them, but Jacob wanted Esau's blessing, and so he stole that. Now you can imagine that after that, things probably are not real copacetic between Esau and Jacob, right? And so Jacob has to hit the road. He's got to run because Esau is essentially committed to killing him at this point. Like, I'm going to take him out. I'm not a fan of my brother any longer. So Jacob runs. And even as he runs now, he goes back to, uh, he ends up, I won't go through all the details of the story, but he essentially ends up cheating and being cheated over and over again throughout the history of his life until finally we come to this moment where he has married and, and kind of moved on. And now he's going to head home. All right, well, who's home? Esau is at home waiting. Jacob has no idea the kind of reception he's going to get. But after years and years now, he's returning home. The night before, he's going to meet Esau again for the first time in years. This is what happens. Look at Genesis 32, starting in verse 22. It says, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them. And sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. All right, this is a guy facing a big moment. He just needs some quiet time. All right. He says, And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. That's the weirdest transition in all of Scripture. Hey, we're just hanging out. I'm going to bed. Going to have some quiet space. And then a man shows up and starts wrestling with you. He says, get off me. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. There's our first clue that this might be more than just a man. Because when's the last time you just touched somebody and put their hip out of socket? Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. That's the marker of Jacob's entire life right there in one sentence. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, because Peniel means face of God. He said, Saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Okay, let's pause right there. Now let's think about what has taken place in this moment. This is what theologians call a theophany. This is an appearance of God uh, in the Old Testament where God shows up for a specific purpose at a specific moment to convey a specific thing. Now what on earth would God be doing showing up to wrestle with Jacob the night before he's about to enter back into his homeland to meet with Esau? What is that about? Why not just, he spoke to him before uh, in a vision, in a dream, and yet he shows up to physically have an altercation with Jacob in this moment. There must be something God intends through doing this in this moment. Well, notice, if you're going to meet Esau and you're not sure how that's going to go and you think a fight might break out, what's the thing you probably don't want to happen to you the night before that takes place? You probably don't want to have your hip put out of place, right? The guy can't run. He can't go anywhere. He's got a river behind him now. That You notice the river that was mentioned. He's got a river that means basically no retreating. And now he's going to go meet Esau. He has become, because God has made him, everybody all together now, incredibly vulnerable. He spends his entire life. This is the life of Jacob. His entire life is spent fending for himself, trying to swindle and get whatever he wants, getting swindled by others because that's what happens when you swindle. You get swindled. And then in the most important moment, possibly, of his entire life, God says, I'm going to make it so you know that you cannot do anything on your own. I'm going to finally force you into vulnerability. I'm going to finally force you to trust me and the word that I have spoken over your life, that I'm going to make you a great nation. And you don't have to earn that or fight for it or figure it out. I am going to do this work and you cannot stop me all the striving that you've been doing for all your life, trying to figure out how to be enough, how to get enough, how to be safe, how to be protected, all of the ways that you have spent your entire life trying to avoid being vulnerable, I am now going to bring that to an end and you will be forced to be vulnerable. Why? Because the opposite of vulnerability is unbelief. The opposite of vulnerability is mistrust and unbelief. Now, here's the mistake that you and I make all the time. We think that by choosing to not be vulnerable, we're kind of settling into um, this neutral ground of just like, yeah, I mean, I'm not being vulnerable, but I'm not like being a jerk or I'm not like disobeying God or running away from God. But friends, I want you to understand something. Every time we choose to put away vulnerability, we are choosing to embrace mistrust and unbelief. There is no middle ground. That's a, that's, that's a false belief, to believe that I can choose to not be vulnerable and yet still be trusting God. You must press into vulnerability or you are pressing into mistrust and unbelief. Think about it this way. In Genesis chapter two, in Genesis chapter two, Adam and Eve were created. Read it again sometime because the interesting thing in that, in that storyline is it seems like the author is trying to make a great point of the fact that they are naked. He mentions it over and over again as if to say they are without clothes. They are na-. It just comes up again and again. And the point, of course, that he's saying is at the end of Genesis 2 he says they were naked and they were unashamed. In other words, they were completely exposed to one another, completely vulnerable, and yet they were unashamed. There was nothing in them that caused them to want to hide from one another. In Genesis 3, sin enters into the world and the first thing Adam and Eve do is what? They find some clothes and they put them on. And they say, now that sin has entered into our psyche, sin is who we are now. This rebellion has taken hold of us. Now that that's the case, I recognize there's much in me that needs to be hidden. I am afraid to be seen So I'm going to put on clothes to hide myself. It's it's obviously a symbolic representation physically of what has happened spiritually. They hide from God and they hide from one another. The second sin enters their world. So when you think about vulnerability this way, maybe it will help you to think like this. Every time you choose vulnerability, you are pushing back the effects of the fall. You are pushing back the effects of sin because you are choosing to press into faith and belief and trust rather than mistrust and unbelief. That's why vulnerability is necessary for belonging because you can't belong without vulnerability because vulnerability is hiding ourselves or a lack of vulnerability is hiding ourselves from one another and when you do that you're pressing into mistrust and mistrust makes for awful decisions and awful relationships have you ever met anyone who doesn't trust anyone do they have great relationships probably not That might be be you. I don't say that as a harsh word, but just to highlight a reality that unless we're willing to choose to be vulnerable, we can't have the type of belonging that we're designed for because our whole life, like Jacob's whole life, gets marked by mistrust and unbelief of God and of others. It's a good marker and a good, good reminder that Jacob didn't ultimately need to trust Esau. Who did Jacob need to trust? He needed to trust God. And God would take care of Esau. Last question we said is this. I mean, it's, it's all well and good, right, to say, hey, we need to be vulnerable uh, in order to belong. We need to belong. That's great. But the question I always ask at the end of these things is, well, how? Like, That's great. You told, me, you told me why, but that doesn't help me with the how. So let me offer a couple thoughts on the how. How can I be willing to risk vulnerability? Anybody familiar with the name Brene Brown? And they may be familiar to you. She's become somewhat popular because she has started to speak about this subject, vulnerability. I think her TED Talk on vulnerability has something like 26 million. I'm probably underselling it, but it's somewhere like 26 million people have looked at this thing. I was watching Brene's TED Talk just to kind of refresh myself and think through some of her thoughts. And here's what's interesting about what Brene has to say. Brene is a researcher uh, and she's been researching vulnerability for years, essentially to come to some conclusions that you can get if you read the Bible one time. Uh, which is so interesting to me. So she spent 10 years researching vulnerability, interviewing all numbers and sorts of people. And she has kind of, this TED Talk really, I mean, launched like everybody. Uh, it may not be your thing, but she is well-known, travels around and speaks everywhere about why vulnerability is necessary. And essentially she's saying what I'm saying to you today. She's, she would say uh, in all of her research and all this sociological and psychological research, She identifies that we are indeed hardwired. She says neurobiologically wired uh, for connecting, for being connected to people. That's what the Bible tells us. We're hardwired to be in relationship with people. So she says the neurobiology backs that reality up, right? She says, okay, yeah, absolutely, totally agree. the next thing she says is vulnerability is absolutely necessary in order to have that. Okay, good. I'm I'm on the same page with you, Brene. But then she does something that I found to be kind of unhelpful. And it's really essentially a circular type of reasoning where at the end of the day, she doesn't tell us how. Okay, I need vulnerability in order to be connected. I'm hardwired for connecting. Tell me how I can choose to be more vulnerable. And her only answer that she gives is you need to just believe that you're enough. She says the people that seem to be able to have a strong sense of belonging are people who believe that they are enough. Now, some, for some of you, that may like ring a bell. I mean, that may hit you and you go, yes, that's good. I need to believe that I'm enough. But friends, here's the problem. I've spent my entire life trying to believe I'm enough and I've never quite gotten there. So how do I do that? How, do, how am I supposed to just start believing that I'm enough? I don't get it. Like you tell me, believe you're enough. Oh, OK. Got it. Done. Right. That's really hard. So how do I do that? Now, here's the interesting thing. I think Brene, ultimately, that's the only answer she offers. and That's literally how she closes her TED Talk. She says, you need to believe that you're enough. And I think to myself, well, that was thoroughly disappointing. Because at the end of it, I want to believe if she had more time, she would have gone further, right? So Maybe, I don't know. I don't know Brene. But at the end of the day, I think, I, my suspicion is that the reason that's where she lands and the only answer she gives is because she reverses something early in her talk that needs to be unreversed. She says that vulnerability is the core of shame. I want you to think about that for a second. In what way is vulnerability the core of shame? What she's saying is, in essence, now I believe that I can choose to be vulnerable and and somebody could shame me for something I've said when I'm vulnerable, but that doesn't make vulnerability the core of shame. Shame is the core reason we choose to not be vulnerable. See, she's reversed it. And there's a reason she's reversed it, I think. And it's because there's a philosophy in the world that says that all human beings are really good at their core. And if they're really good at their core, then I can't say that shame is the reason we don't want to be vulnerable because that's to say that people have something to be ashamed of. I have to say vulnerability is at the core of shame because then I can say that shame is being foisted upon you by someone outside of you. But the Bible tells us this. When sin entered the world, we were all born into it. Therefore, we have something to be ashamed of because at our core, we are not righteous or good. We are wicked and in rebellion against God. And if that's the case, then I am deeply shameful. I'm covered in it. And the reason I don't want to be vulnerable is because I don't want all the things that I am ashamed of to be revealed, Right? That's really why I have a struggle with vulnerability. It's not because somebody else foisted an idea of shame on me. It's because I know deep within that I am truly and sincerely shameful. Now, the question I asked is this. How can I be willing to become vulnerable? The answer is probably what you would expect. It's simple. It's not complex. Because I want you to think about this, right? Genesis 2. Adam and Eve, created, completely vulnerable, naked and unashamed. Genesis 3, sin enters the world. They clothe themselves. And by the way, in his infinite mercy, God gives them even better clothes. He says, let me give you better clothes than the ones you've put on yourself. Because I now recognize that you are going to be afraid to be vulnerable. And so I'm going to give you a type of clothing while I work out how I'm going to resolve all of this difficulty that you've just created. I'm going to allow you to clothe yourselves and to and even to do some hiding in a sense for a time, right? So he says those clothing in Genesis 3 really represent like the clothing of shame, right? They exist, they, those clothing exist that Adam and Eve get because they are ashamed, because they have become something shameful by choosing sin. But listen to what Revelation chapter 3, verse 5 says. Speaking about God's people. It says to the one who conquers conquers by the blood of the lamb to the one who conquers uh, the one who conquers will be clothed in what white garments and I will never blot his name from the book of life in other words what he is telling us what the writer of revelation is telling us is that when you come to Jesus you exchange the clothes of shame and guilt for the clothes of righteousness You become clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Something in you changes at the most fundamental level when you become a follower of Jesus because he gives you his righteousness and he takes your sin. And so that shame that was there that prevented you from being vulnerable has now been taken away. It's not to say that you are always perfectly righteous and always make perfect decisions, but at your very core, you are no longer what you were. And if you want to be, friends, if you want to be willing to be vulnerable, The only way to do that is to have the shame that you were born with removed. And the only way for that shame to be removed is how? The blood of Jesus, to be clothed in his righteousness. Exchange the clothes of shame for the clothes of righteousness that Jesus has to give. When you believe the gospel, it transforms you. And that transformation can make you willing to be vulnerable. Now, that's a little... That's, that's, that's an idea that you have to grapple with and wrestle with. It's the gospel itself, right? The gospel is what makes you willing to be vulnerable and believing that. But how do I believe it? How do I, step, how do I actually appropriate that belief into my life? Can I give you a couple of things? Because I'm the kind of guy that likes really practical. Like I don't, I don't want you to just tell me, like, be, believe this. I know that's true. Believe it and it will transform you. It does. But how do I go about every day bringing that belief further into my life so that I'm not just sort of trying to think it up here. Like, what do I do down here to to appropriate that belief into my life? I'm gonna give you three things. They're not gonna be surprising. They are not genius, all right? They are simple. Number one, read your Bible every stinking day, all right? Because the Bible is the story of God doing exactly what we just talked about. And if you want to be, you need to be saturated in it so that you are reminded who you are because the world will tell you a very different story every day. You are putting on armor around the reality of the truth that you are righteous in Christ before you go out and have the world beat up on that armor every day and they will. Number 2, talk to God every day. Pray. Talk to him and listen to him. Look, here's the thing. When you pray, you are looking at you are looking at the one in whose image you are being transformed into. Right? And when you look at him and see what you're being transformed into, it, it absolutely captures your attention and causes you to go, oh, that's what I'm becoming? That's what I'm being shaped into? I'm not there yet, but that, that beauty, that glory, that greatness, I'm being transformed into that image, into that likeness? When you pray, that's essentially what you're doing. You are gazing upon, if you don't like the word gazing, dudes, if it's, not, if it's too, like, you know, ooey, you know, ooey-gooey. And you just think looking at, all right? Staring at. Think laser beam vision, like focused on, right? Like you are focusing on, setting your eyes on the one who you're being transformed into, who has placed his likeness in you, given you his righteousness. Read your Bible every day. Talk to God every day. Listen to God every day. Last one is this. I'll give you is become the type of person who tells other people what you see God doing in him along these same lines. When you see God recapturing some part of someone's life, when you see God making someone humble or gracious or wise, when you see God making someone a servant, just point that out. Because when you point that out to him, guess what? You may be able to begin to believe that he's doing the same thing in you. That when you see it happening and point it out in others, there's just something about that that causes us to go, oh my gosh, I can actually begin to believe he's doing that in me as well. And then when you believe that, when you appropriate that belief, the kind of vulnerability that you need to live in belonging will begin to become feasible for you. You'll be able to step into it. Let me close with this. Friends, we, we want to create, we want to be a church where people with all manner of habits and hurts and hang ups, people who come from all manner of backgrounds, who have experienced all kinds of weird stuff, who have made really poor choices, who have made really great choices. We want to be the kind of church where every single one of those types of people can belong, can know and experience that. Because honestly, friends, uh, that can change an entire community, a church like that. A church like that changes people's lives. Church in other ways is just, a, is just like a hobby and it's not even a good hobby, right? Go take up woodworking, build a canoe. It's way more practical or productive, right? But step into church and be the kind of place where you're willing to be vulnerable in those small pockets of people. And as you do that, the type of belonging will permeate this place and it will change. It will change you. It will change us and it will change our community. I really believe that. Look, that's little bit by little bit. That's what happens. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you instruct us and teach us. I pray that Whatever words have been mine, you would just cause to kind of quickly leave our minds. But what words have been yours, I pray, would land in our hearts and, and sit there and cause us to mold them over and let you sift us with those words, Father. We invite you to examine us. Even as we come to sing now, Father, we want to respond to you. Say, have all of us. You're in charge, not us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.